Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Well, each year the ranks of the returned men and women from the global conflagrations, World War I and World War II, each year those ranks thin. And soon there'll be very few left from World War II. George Francis is 95 years old, he turns 96 soon in fact, and has very, very clear memories of his days as a 19-year-old recruit in World War II. George spent his war in Papua New Guinea. By the time he celebrated his 21st birthday, the traditional milestone marking passage to adulthood, he had already seen a lot of action. That birthday in the Owen Stanley Ranges is just one of the recollections George has of his years as a soldier in the Pacific in World War II. The Battle of Milne Bay was just one of the actions he was involved in. It was my very, very great privilege to meet George Francis at an aged care facility run by Anglicare in Sydney just this past week. I did my national service training in October 1941, which ostensibly was going to be, say, for two or three months or whatever it was then. And then Japanese bomb Pearl Harbour in 1941 in December. Then I was in the army for five and a half years. What sort of a man were you at 19? Well, I brought up in a, uh, a family of uh, very strict disciplinarians and I didn't drink, didn't smoke, went to Sunday school, sang in the church choir. I was somebody a bit of a wimp. And when I went into the... Uh, I did my service training, I was a bit of a cult change for me because I had never been mixed with anybody at all, you know, like taking showers and so forth. At the end of the day, I'd wait for to have my shower, but then I was getting in the cold water all the time, and then I thought, well, that must have <laughs> <laughs> And then I joined in with the mob, and I came in with the mob, and uh, so I was introduced to smoking. Had my first smoke while I was doing kitchen duty. I think I spent the rest of the time on my back, sick so why had the second smoke, I'll never know. <laughs> and I had my first drink down at Bowen Giller. By the way, that's not Bonnie Giller, it's Bowen Giller. It's actually the name of this camp down at Albury. And uh, I was introduced to some pots of beer down there. They said, you can be a man, have a beer, and which I did. And I went to the pitches that night, and uh, all I could see the screen was going round and round. So I had to go <laughs> the next night to see what it was all about. So it's fair to say that... Uh, the army changed you in a pretty big way, and did it? Was there a sense of adventure about that? Oh my word! My mother said I went into the army an angel, and I come out the devil incarnate. <laughs> I drank, I smoked, <laughs> I gambled, <laughs> I did all those things that I shouldn't have done, and uh, a great disappointment. But still, there we are. I was one of the youngest at nineteen, and there were some of the other boys there, which. Didn't take to it too well, and they sent them to the quieter area of Moresby. And when we had our first air attack, which I didn't know what was happening, I thought, well, the siren went off at the ambulance services. So I was digging a trench around the uh, the tent because they told me the rainfall was severe there and uh, we needed it deep and wide. And when this noise, somebody said there's some ants crawling on the ceiling, well, those ants were... Mr. Ritchie 108 Japanese bombers. And when 
I started bombing on the guns went off. I went to the ground trying to fit myself inside this little trench I was digging. <laughs> and when I got up, when the earth stopped shaking, I got away, I was shaking. He said, how do you feel, George? And I involuntarily said, I want me mother. <laughs> Which seemed to blatant the nexus and cause a bit of laughter and uh, rather funny subsequent attacks. They would say, do you still want your mother, George? I said, yeah, and I want me father too. So we sort of made a joke, typically Australian, and uh, somehow or other I uh, adapted to it, became a top wireless operator, was sent to fighter sector, uh, which was the operational area for the uh, Air Force, and I was a liaison from the controller of fighter sector, mm. and uh, I had to uh, have the phone when the controller said to stop firing from the guns and I had to give the orders to, to stop firing and then when he said you can fire again I'd kill them they could fire again. What did you think about the task that you and your comrades were given at that time? Well we became a 40 strong signal section of wireless operators, linesmen it was our duty to lay the cable and they, they said there were 8,000 coconut trees in Millen Bay and those trees were used as, uh, as uh, posts in which to attach our cable mm. because the cable was rotted on the ground. And we used the spurs to climb up those trees like the lines would do. So you had tasks that you had to execute. They were part of a, a plan, a campaign. What did you think about the consequences of what you were doing? Well, the consequences were this. Had the Japanese taken Millen Bay, it would have been the pathway to invade Australia. Nobody in Australia knew how close they were because they were kept oblivious of what was happening. They didn't even know. Mm. Not to this day, to some of the public even know what it was, how close it was. Millen Bay is, what, 400 miles from uh, the coast mm. of Australia. And so was there a sense amongst you and your colleagues that you were doing something of absolute significance for your homeland? <laughs> Self-preservation. Mm. You uh, you had to defend that, and you knew exactly that uh, this was the last we were told, the last line of defence. Was that frightening? No, never frightened. Sense of adventure. I was young. I never grew up actually because I uh, I left school, which was regimented. I got the intermediate certificate. I was immediately. Uh, signed to apprenticeship for the land newspaper, which was uh, also regimented because I went to tech and I had to uh, observe uh, protocol. Mm. And then uh, at 18 I was called up to do national service, so I never really grew from uh, youth into maturity. Mm. Mm. And of course when I uh, did go into this unit, I was 19, there were some chaps there Ten years older than me, so I had to sort of measure up to the, the people that have experienced maturity and had family, probably some of them. You found your place. Well, you nevertheless saw, and the fighting at Milne Bay was um, ferocious, and in New Guinea itself, it was a it was a terrible situation. What was that like? You said you've described it as an adventure, but. Well. <laughs> Well, you have to do something, and it is an adventure in as much as 
you don't get frightened. You might get nervous about certain things. If you get frightened and nervous about things, you lose your equilibrium. Mm. And you don't do your job properly. I was a group one specialist wireless, so I remember dealing in Morse code and all sorts of things, communication. Important job at the Air Force. And of course, that lasted until uh, about March 1943. The Japanese, in desperation, they bombed Oro Bay, 100-plane raid, and then they bombed Moresby and Mullen Bay. And that was the end. Then our unit, in, 19, in September, became part of 9 task force that left Mullen Bay and uh, liberated Lai and Nadzam mm. in the area in the Yunnan Peninsula. And uh, we were... Due to come home, the uh, operator, the wireless operators, for uh, uh, about fortnight's uh, recap. And I was the youngest, and there was one chap there that was a little bit uh, unhappy with his life, and I found out that his wife had just had a baby. And the officer called me, and he said to me, He said, George, he said, You're young, would you be prepared to step aside and let Noel take your place? Which oh. I did. And uh, he was a very happy man to do that. But then I was given the task of uh, being one of the inaugural flights from Mullen Bay to Moresby. And we had to take the uh, DC-3, flight flown by an American pilot, through a gap in the Owen Stanley uh, ranges of 14,000 feet, the Twin Peaks. There's a gap through which we go. We flew through and we lost traction through there at one stage and we dropped about 500 feet which was a bit frightening but uh, we eventually gained power again and I spent about three months up on the Owen Stanley Range, about 2,000 feet up doing a six school which is very interesting because I spent my 21st birthday there. Usually at home you get the key of the door (laughs) so this particular lunchtime I had an individual serving of Bully beef, little can, in which there yeah. was a key to unlock it. Yeah. So when I had a look at this key, I thought, hello, this is the key to the door. <laughs> so I polished it up and I put it in my personal uh, belongings, and uh, yes. I don't know what happened to that thing there, but I always remember. And George, do you remember w- what you were doing when you heard that it was all over? Well, we'd by that time we'd gone to Labian Island in New Guinea, and um, um, Borneo. We'd cleared that up and uh, we'd endured the fact that the 17,000 Japanese troops broke out one night and ran around amok and it took about a week to quell that and then uh, I happened to be standing near the uh, Salvation Army tent on the 7th of August when they dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Hmm. And then on the uh, two days later on Nagasaki, they said that the uh, war's over, which we couldn't believe because we'd been going since 1942, continuously from uh, Millen Bay. Mm. I remember quite distinctly standing with the Salvation Army officer, most magnificent man. He used to go down with his jeep and his uh, urn of coffee down to the mm. Australian troops and used to come back crying at the endurance in which they were going through. Mm. So he looked at me and he said, George, he said, I think a little bit of a prayer would be in the hand. So he just grabbed my hand and 
We just thank God that the whole thing was over. It was officially over on the 15th of August, and about two weeks later, our troops saved the rescue of the six survivors from the Sand Duncan Death March. Oh. And they were brought to Lebanon Base Hospital. And there was a, uh, well, the authority went around to the units to see if they could find somebody suitable to help rehabilitate these chaps. And a friend of mine and I were chosen. So we were promptly taken there and we stood there and these chaps come in and stood in front of us. And I said to my mate, what do you say to these chaps? And uh, it was very... Uh, harrowing sort of time and... Well, what did you say to them? Well, I said to them, I said, you've got to realise now that if you want to get back to your loved ones, you want to cleanse your mind of all thoughts of hatred and retribution. That's only going to hold you back. I said, when you get yourself fit and ready and able to, that's the time to start worrying about the hatred and retribution. Get yourself well. I said, when you wake up in the morning, realise the fact that you're among friends, friends are going to help you. Mm. And uh, we talked about various things and so forth. And I'm sure that we did some good. Can I ask you, you you've, by your own admission, you were a, a kind of naive 19-year-old when you were called up to national service. Uh, by this stage... You're just a few years older, but where did that wisdom come from? Oh, experience and involvement. We had to do things the tough way in the Australian Army. When we got to Mullen Bay, we had a palliace with straw. After two days, we were given implements to go out and, and develop our own bedding, so I had to chop down two saplings, chuck two ends. <laughs> I found a bit of wire netting that had been used for a chook yard, and I wrapped that around, and I slept on wire netting as a inner spring <laughs> bed for eight months. Well, that's that's and, ingenuity, and that's and, uh, that's admirable. But I want, I want to press this point: when you found the wisdom to say to these Sandakan Death March survivors that they had to put all the hatred out of their mind. Where did that wisdom come from? Well, I've always... Uh, uh, the only way you're ever going to think properly is to get rid of any negative thoughts in your mind. Mm. You've got to think beautiful, not ugly. You've got to think of everybody right this, that you meet at the start is good. You only find through experience what they're like. Mm. Those that you then can't understand or will you just ignore. So when you came home and were repatriated and got on with the rest of your life, did you carry any anger? How did you accommodate that for yourself? Anger against what? Anger at what had happened. Well, the only anger I... Well, I suppose, not anger, I, I'm not a type of person that gets angry, but I was a, a little bit... Uh, I don't know. I could have played competitive cricket and uh, up in uh, Borneo, I captained the team that won the competition and I right. took six crickets and the umpire was uh, 
Frank Brooks, who happened to be the new South Wales uh, state fast bowler, and he said to me, who do you play with? And I told him, he gave me an introduction to go back home and talk to Bill O'Reilly, who was captain of the St George team, and just behind Ray Little, I knew Ray Little and uh, Arthur Morris. And of course, when I got back, what they did, they uh, I put in to get back to Australia after the war had finished. But they said I was too valuable. I needed my services in the '90s Sig office, and they kept us in Borneo for seven months following the war. And we didn't get back until March 1946, where I went to Liverpool Transit Camp, and I applied to get out of the uh, army, and they refused again because I had experience in the printing trade and they sent me to the army printing press in, uh, in the Surrey, Surrey Hills and uh, I don't know by the time I got out of the army it was 14 months after the war had finished Goodness. by the time I had to go back to the land newspaper I still had three years finished. And you missed the opportunity to play cricket then? That was my childhood dream as a matter of fact when I was uh, 10 years of age my father took me to uh, at Jay Palmer's in Park Street with Don Bradman, 22-year-old Don Bradman was there in attendance and we walked in and he shook my hands, which I didn't wash for two weeks. <laughs> and uh, he said, what can I do for the young fellow? He picked the bat out, which I used, and I still have that bat, my Don Bradman bat. And uh, I was very, very keen on the fact that I would play competitive cricket. Mm. Behind Ray Limberley, I consider the, the best fast bowler I've ever seen. He was just imagine he, he could have played Test cricket at 19, mm. but he was in the army and he played Test cricket when he was only 27. So, was it missed opportunities that a whole generation missed opportunities in a sense, didn't they? Oh, but, yeah, yeah. but at the same time, the army made you in a way. <laughs> it wasn't the army, it was the men. I was with some of the greatest men I've ever met. Thoroughly, great men. But what, what did you bring out of that experience into your later life? I composure, I suppose, the ability to face any uh, what might seem major to other people. I dismissed as minor instance in life I I had to go back and finish three I was 24 and a half and apprentices that were under me before I went into the army were now tradesmen right and they were teaching me and laughing about the fact that the roles had been reversed mm. so I think that it cost me a lot in time and patience did that um bring for you or for any of your friends a sense of bitterness? You've already said that no. Australia didn't really know how close it came and there you were literally at the, at, the, uh, at the front end protecting our country. You come home, you see that people have advanced in front of you because you've been off doing a national service. There was no bitterness? No, no way. You could have a bitterness towards those but they didn't know any better. They weren't told. They didn't know. Mm. No. There were people that didn't even know there were troops in in Borneo. Mm. The whole nine diver in the, the top of Borneo and the seven diver down in Bellic Pappen, the bottom of Borneo. But nobody knew. We were only there 
to hold up the advance so MacArthur could uh, return, <laughs> which he did. <laughs> of course, Harry Truman did the right thing, he sacked him. You've got a very healthy atti- Australian attitude towards MacArthur, haven't you? Oh, he's just a big <laughs> blowout, that's all. What, what, what annoyed me was the fact that General Gordon Bennett did the same thing from Singapore and he was uh, regarded as nobody. He was on the ma- most magnificent man. Mm. Pity to God he didn't take over. Now, George, in a few years there'll be, f- there'll be no one left from that time, no one who was an eyewitness to those events. What do you want future generations to know about that? They'll never know. History's never been taught. We had a 40-strong Sikh section. There's only two of us left. We were the youngest. Fred Harris and Adelaide and myself. They're all gone. And you wonder why you're left. Why are you left? If you can tell me, my friend, uh, <laughs> I often wonder myself, but I, I, I do think that I have looked after myself. I do really look after myself. I think you're pretty good. I know that you're turning 96 in a little while, uh, so that's pretty amazing in anybody's language. Maybe you're left, as, you're left because you're a witness and your recall is incredible. Oh, I should have wrote that. I, I was mad, you know. I uh, was too uh, cocky with myself. I... Uh, did well in printing. I advanced myself. I also, after that, I became president of Probus. I was the editor of a journal there. I conducted outings. I did speeches and I wrote articles. And I was so conscious of myself. I thought the greatest computer I had was one on my shoulder. So I never worried about computers. But I think if I had got a laptop computer, I uh, I could have written a book. I started off, you know, on uh, handwritten A4 sheets and I got 100 pages. I started when I was five and I got to 15. <laughs> I can't continue. No, it's quite a chore. <laughs> it's too laborious. I think talking is a lot easier, right? <laughs> I, uh, I can remember my school days. I can recall every teacher I ever had. And Goodness. Goodness me. Oh. Well, now, George, I want to ask you a question about faith. You... You spoke about uh, being with the Salvation Army chaplain and praying when you'd heard that the bomb had been dropped and the war had been over and so on. Uh, what was the spiritual life, the prayer life like uh, f- for those men at the front? There was a saying, there is no such person as an atheist in a slit trench. They're all praying. And when they get out of the situations and they find they're safe, they forget some. That's a strange thing. I had occasion to be uh, the communication means of a searchlight battery up in KB Mission. You're in the jungle. At the night time, you know, it's very eerie feeling that you don't know whether the enemy's behind a tree or what's happening at all. And... If you haven't got any faith to hang on to, you've got nothing. I just don't know what these people think about these non-believers and so forth. Well, have a look around you. 
Yeah, this come about. Now you had a sense that God was with you at the, in those moments? Always. Always. You see, you've got to look upwards and not downwards. And when you look upwards, you find faith. Mm. And when you find faith, you find peace. Mm. And when you find peace, you're calm and you can... And when you're doing it at all, you do it with measured feelings and know what you're doing. Mm. I don't hate. I couldn't hate. If I don't like anybody, well, I like everybody. When I, they don't like me, well, it's too bad. Sometimes I don't like myself. <laughs> <laughs> but when I came back from the army, I uh, at the land newspaper, my future wife was the private secretary of Sir Harry Budd. And I just don't know what happened. I just happened to say one day, well, somebody said something, so I was was mentioning your name. I said, who's that? So I just said, would you like to go to the pictures? And she did. That was it. And I I believe she's the only girl you've ever had. Well, before the war, I I, I played sport. I'd always involved in sport. I had one sister who I thought was a bit peculiar. As all brothers do, and I thought, her, <laughs> and I thought her girlfriends were. So I wasn't interested. So by the time I got in the army, there were no girls in New Guinea, there were no girls in Borneo, and of course yeah. when I come back, yeah. Yeah. the only girl I sort of took out was Barbara, and it's quick. And would you believe my memory? I took her out the third of December, nineteen forty-nine. And the 4th of December was the first issue of the Sunday Telegraph. Goodness me. Because I took her to Wynyard Station. Yeah. And I Not said, the early edition, did you? Well, I said, can I take you home? She said, you can't take me home. And I thought that might be the end. But when I did take her home, I found she lived at West Bennett Hills. And it took me two and a half hours to get back home to Carlton that night. And I, got home. <laughs> <laughs> I understood why then. But here you are, and you're both together now in the same retirement unit. Mm. All these years. How many years married? 67. Great years. Wonderful. And would you believe I've got two daughters and six granddaughters? There's not a boy amongst them. Ah. Well, i still got my Don Bradman bat. <laughs> Just waiting for someone else to oh, come and pick it up. No. I don't think I can wait much longer. <laughs> We enjoy life, and I must say this, that never could anybody be in a more wonderful place Mm. than where I am. The management and staff are beyond belief. You never, I don't know, how they pick them. All these wonderful people that help us. There's a a daily program that is absolutely unbelievable. Well, something three cheers for Anglicare, oh, which yeah. um, arranged for, for us to meet. Too. Yes. And, <laughs> so, George, it's been an absolute delight getting to know you. Thank you very much for spending time with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. He had no one to give the Donald Bradman bat to. He's a great storyteller, and it was delightful to meet George Francis, whose mind is the sharpest I've ever met. His His recall is extraordinary. And you know why he never wrote a book? He said that... He trusted his own mind 
And when computers started up, bear in mind he'd already been in the workforce as a compositor working um, for, Fair, for the Fairfax Press, which was running the Land newspaper at the time, uh, he said he didn't, he didn't think he had to learn about this newfangled technology, so he never really learned computers. And he said, if I'd bought a laptop, maybe I would have written my book. Well, we were privileged to be able to hear some of his story on Open House tonight. And George, by the way, wanted me to make special mention, a special thank you to the staff who look after him and his wife uh, at the Anglican Retirement Villages in Castle Hill in Sydney, run by Anglicare. This is Open House. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.